Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. That's 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the seat in front of you and turn to page 897. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. We do not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and worship with you. Uh, let's start this uh, morning's sermon with a prayer. O God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in the Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. What a title today, huh? <laughs> Who wrote this? Um, but we've been going through the first letter uh, to the Corinthian church, and passage by passage, we are getting to discover the problems that the Corinthian church was plagued by. And so far, we've gone through the sin of division the sin of not disciplining sin, the sin of suing each other. And now we come to this portion of the text where Paul is going to deal with sexual immorality or porneia. And if you look at these sins so far, they aren't necessarily sins that the secular world would think they are any priority at all. But hopefully, as we've, been, as we've been going through this series, you'll see why that having gravity to these sins are vital to a healthy church. But when you're talking to a non-Christian group, why in the world would they accept these teachings? In fact, I assure you that if you had spoken some of these things, maybe all of these things, to the outside world, they would think that you're coming in from left field. Um, even here, I talked about, here in this place, I talked about the value of chastity. And I kid you not, um, one young man was snickering. Because the idea now, in 2020, of sexual purity seems absurd what are you even talking about, Huge? Why are you talking about this? This is 2020. 
You know, what I find more absurd is that we, in 2020, can be so arrogant into thinking that we are so advanced in our thinking that anything in the past is backwards and even archaic. You know, in regards to last week's uh, sermon, I was talking to my staff this past week about homosexuality and how the ancient Greeks viewed it how it was romanticized to the nth degree, where it would put our current ideas of LGBTQ to shame, like really. They reasoned it up to the national level, where your nation would thrive if you would just adopt these practices. And there are books, poems, writings on this. And it saddens me when I think of how little some of our young people who should be the most educated people in history, who should have the most access to information in all of history, than any other time know so little about history. And even talking with uh, our staff, Sam would even say that uh, maybe we should do a special podcast on homosexuality in the ancient world. But when we talk about things like this, about purity, about sexual immorality, honestly, unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ, none of this is going to make sense precisely because you have to start with Jesus Christ. You have to start with Christ, and we get to see that in this passage. You know, people in the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago would also say things like you would hear today, but in a much more philosophical and poetic way. They would say things like, what's the big deal about sex? It's biological. It's not about being moral or immoral. It's amoral. Dogs do it. Cats do it. You and me, mammals, and something about the History Channel, we sing songs about it, or Discovery Channel. And the people in Corinth, what they took it to was that they were so immoral that the word to Corinthianize was a coined term and a word that meant that you were to have sex with a prostitute. Corinthianize was actually a word that was used. The big deal then is this, that even though they were born from above, they were bringing their old life into the church. They were were carrying one former sin after another, one secular ideology after another into the church. And they thought that they could be bringing these things and they could align them with the gospel only to find that when you do these things, you do tremendous harm to not just yourselves, but to the church. And so I want to go over, and because this is a larger group, I try to keep it a little bit um, more organized for our elders so they don't uh, stress out. So there are three things, three things that sexual immorality does. In verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And we'll stop there. All things are lawful for me seems to be a saying that the Corinthians were using to justify their behavior. All things are lawful for me occurs twice here and again twice in chapter 10. And 
it's this catchphrase that seems to have been used to assert their Christian liberty. What are they asserting their Christian liberty over? They're asserting it over Jewish legalism. In fact, we see this kind of thinking among some groups even now who think that following God's law is some kind of Pharisaic legalism. So to counter legalism, it's because Christ, didn't Christ set us free from the law is what people would say. They would use that catchphrase. Didn't Christ set us free from the law so all things are lawful for me? And people would think that following God's law is legalistic. Oh, you kind of follow the Bible a little too closely. Isn't that being legalistic? And then when you say things like that, certain ideologies get adopted. Certain philosophies are embraced. And actions as a result are not fruitful. And so Paul counters that phrase with, but not all things are helpful. Helpful is from the word simphero, which also means profitable or advantageous. It means that yes, yes, if you are a Christian, you are forgiven in Christ. God will forgive, but the consequences that you will have to go through are still very high. All things are lawful for me, sure, but not all things are helpful, points to that the Corinthians' sexual immorality is harmful. It harms you. So we see the first thing that Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians is that sexual immorality is harmful and it harms you. The consequences for this sin is exceptionally high. And after hearing that, you might start to wonder why. Why this sin? Why are the consequences so dire for this particular sin? But before we get into that, we have to see that this, this is a particular sin that the Bible explicitly warns against over and over again. In fact, if you give in to the sin, you're not just considered unwise, you're considered a fool. The Corinthians who are boasting about their own wisdom, look at our current day philosophy. Aren't we great? Haven't we achieved so much? Aren't we so evolved and mature and advanced? They were boasting about their own wisdom, but they were not able to see the foolishness of their own beliefs and actions that were clearly laid out in the scriptures. You know, if you are a young person, in fact, any person, young or old, and you wanted to attain wisdom, and you wanted to look in the Bible, where would you go? If you're a young person or any person that wants to attain wisdom, where would you most likely go? And for most people, it would be Proverbs. Proverbs is a book so that we can be wise. So let's go to Proverbs. For the first four chapters of Proverbs, it's about the prize of wisdom, how wisdom, she ought to be highly prized. Sophia is to be highly prized. That's the first four chapters. And then right after the first four chapters, the very next three chapters, 
three chapters, what is it about? It's about adultery and sexual immorality. That's how big this sin is. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3 to 5, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. It starts with the warning of the adulteress. It starts with the warning against sexual immorality. And if you keep on doing these things, you go to verse 11 of that chapter, and it says, And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. When you keep on giving yourself to these things, your flesh and your body are consumed. The regret that you will have is not small fold. You know, one thing I've read as a young man that I'll never forget, it's that the lie that young people are told, especially young men, they are told this lie that it's okay to lust. It's not that bad to lust. Because once you get married, those desires will be fulfilled by your wife. What a lie that is. The account that I read was of a man in his 60s who was never able to conquer his lust. And how even now, in his 60s, it raged on inside of him and it ate him up, consuming him. But his body wouldn't be able to act on those lustful passions. His body wouldn't be able to keep up of his lustful passions. And he would say that his lust never decreased because he got married. It only increased. And if you think that your lustful passions are a sizable flame now, imagine feeding that fire for another 30 years. You will say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. What a fool I was. And that's the warning that the Bible gives you. And if you think that after seeing these first few verses, even in Proverbs chapter 5, you think that God is anti-sex or that sex is not something to be talked about because it's not sanctified enough, whatever that means, then just go down to verse 18 of that chapter and it says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. God isn't against sex. Sex is a gift from God. That means he is for it. But to pervert what is meant as a gift into something else means to turn it into not a blessing, but to turn it into a curse. That's why the imperative, that's why the plea, that's why the urgency against this sin. I said for the next three chapters of Proverbs 5 to 7, uh, Solomon would talk about this. In chapter 7, we see this foolish young man walking where he shouldn't be walking. He's browsing where he shouldn't be browsing. And it says in verse 21, 
that with much seductive speech, she persuades him. You know, earlier in chapter 5, it would say, for the lips of a, a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Um, you think that you're going to get something sweet. You think that you're going to get something amazing. It's so enticing. Like your body yearns for it so much. And then in verse 22 of chapter 7, it says this, All at once, he follows her. How? All at once, he follows her like a rich man getting his riches? Like the guy who won the lottery is going to cash out? Like the guy who's going to receive a crown? No, all at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. This sin will tear you and destroy you. It will take you apart. How serious does God take this sin? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, it mentions how 23,000 were killed because of sexual immorality. 23,000 were killed in one day because of this sin. Many of you know this story. King David loved the Lord. And we know that the Lord loved King David. He was a man after his own heart. How much did God love David? He loved him intensely and immensely. There is no doubt right now that he is in heaven communing with the Lord. But while he was here on this earth, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Here was a king who should have been with his soldiers in war, but he stayed back at the temple palace. And he was walking along his palace, and he notices a woman bathing on the roof. And it's exactly how James describes sin. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And James says after that, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Once he commits adultery with Bathsheba, it opens the door for a slew, a whole slew of other sins to come charging in even murder. And when he is confronted with this sin, he writes Psalm 51. He writes Psalm 51, where we all are familiar with, create in me a clean heart. This is a desperate plea. You can see and feel the weight and anguish of David in this psalm. But David paid for this sin every single waking day in his life. David paid for that sin for the rest of his life. It destroyed him. It destroyed his whole family. God forgave David. Don't get me wrong. But the consequences are dire. That's the what. We're not getting into the why yet because the why comes later. But that's the what? That's the reality of sexual immorality, of adultery, of sin in this sense. 
And if you even look at today, why are all these great churches falling? The vast majority of the cases of churches falling is because of this sin. And that's why we ought to pray for our church leaders so that they don't succumb to this sin. This is a sin that the Bible continually warns against because sexual immorality is harmful. It's literally full of harm. All things are lawful for me, he says a second time, but I will not be dominated by anything. The second thing that Paul mentions is that while people are using this catchphrase to rationalize this evil behavior, we're not going to be legalists. We're free in Christ. And we start doing these evil things that what we are really saying is at this moment, I am using God to do this evil behavior. When you sin, you're not looking at God. What you're, do, what you're literally saying while sinning is that I find this more appealing than God right now. That's what's happening when you sin. I find this thing more appealing than God right now. And the second thing that Paul mentions while people are using this catchphrase to rationalize this evil behavior, he says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Sexual immorality, number two, dominates. It overpowers. It oppresses you. It enslaves you. Sexual morality, immorality enslaves you. The disciple of Christ is indeed free. All things are lawful for me is what they might say because of their initial understanding of grace. I get it. When you first learn about the religion, this is an amazing grace that we have received. Because every religion has rules that are laid out for people to follow. And every religion outside of Christianity has a rule that, that's laid down that are to be kept. Why? Because it leads to salvation. But not Christianity. We avoid evil things and what we do is good not to merit salvation, Salvation is by grace alone. Salvation is given to us because of who God is and what He has done for us. So yes, there is liberty in Christ. And yes, even sexual liberty. But it is liberty to love. Augustine would say this, love and do what you will. Love and do what you will. But to live out this maxim, you must first understand what love is. If you understand love, then you can live in that liberty. But the Corinthians weren't living in this so-called liberty to show the scope of Christ's love to one another. They were doing it to explicitly gratify themselves and their own desires. So yes, we don't earn our salvation by following rules and regulations. It is precisely because we are saved that we can follow or we are able to follow rules and regulations. By mixing these two ideas up, the Corinthians would put themselves under the sin. They would be subject to it. The early church father Chrysostom would teach that while all things are in my power, I should not be overpowered by anything. If you are truly free, as you say you are, 
Why would you enslave yourself to this sin? And this sin is special because you can see the progression take place quite in a special way, even when you're growing up. Even as you're growing up, we could see this actually happen. Uh, the first time I dated was at the end of my sophomore year in college. <laughs> so <clears throat> I think even my parents started to get worried because I didn't date for so long. But <clears throat> man, when you start dating, I just really wanted to hold her hand. Um, so bad. I tried to be a gentleman. <clears throat> so I said, you know, I'll wait till uh, our third date to hold her hand. Um, and I would always constantly sing the Beatles song, I want to hold your hand, right? I didn't know any of the other lines in that song. I don't know any other words, no verses. I just know that uh, little phrase, I want to hold your hand. And that's what I would just be singing all day. <clears throat> I would repeat it over and over in my head. But you see, it was glorious when I finally got to hold her hand for the first time. But if you know what I'm talking about, that glory does not last. It doesn't last. It needs to progress. It goes from holding hands to kissing. And if you know the rhyme, it ends up with a baby in a baby carriage or something. But further and further you go, you're in a spiral downward that you cannot get control of. You can't get out of it. You are not in control anymore. The more you give in, to this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's the will of God. That's what He wants you to do. He wants you to be sanctified, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this manner because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For the Lord has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is a serious sin. We're talking serious business when we come to this sin. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, it says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Discipline could be translated as bruise as well. It's to beat down and keep it beaten down. It's the word used in Luke 18, 5. Yet because, so there's this widow that constantly is badgering this judge, and this judge isn't nice. He's not righteous, but he answers the widow because she constantly badgers him. And it says in Luke 18, 5, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming because she kept on coming to the judge's house. That continual beat me down, that's the word. That's the word discipline. I discipline my body. It's not just once, but I continually do. This is something that we must continually do. Don't give up just trying one time. Don't give up. Keep at it keep it up because otherwise the reverse will happen and you will be enslaved by it 
in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The third thing that sexual sin does that it distorts. It distorts. And this distortion is profound. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Apparently, this expression was used by the Corinthians to say that eating food is a natural bodily function. And fornication, by fornication, of course, I mean having sex with someone you're not married to. That's fornication, okay? Fornication is having sex with someone you're not married to. Fornication is that just the same. It's simply a bodily function. But Paul flat out rejects this statement. He says, God will destroy both when they're saying food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy both. The belly and the food are transient. A commentator would write, God has not permanent plans for the stomach. God has not permanent plans for the stomach. This is true. The belly and food will be destroyed. However, the body is destined not to be destroyed. Clearly then, the body isn't made for sex. It's not simply made for sex. The body is made for then. The body is made for the Lord. The body is going to be raised. Your body is for the Lord. We will be in heaven with literal bodies. And of course, it will be transformed, it will be glorified, but the point is that the connection between the body and sex is not true. The body isn't connected to sensual lust and sex, but rather the connection that we are to recognize is between the body and the Lord. This is why what you do with your body isn't unimportant. Because what you do with your body is for the Lord. And if this connection is true, and it is, then just as food is necessary for the stomach to function, then the Lord is necessary for the body to function. So Paul refers to something far greater than simply a natural function. And that would mean sex is far more than simply a biological or physical function. It's a spiritual union. This is why C.S. Lewis would write in the Screw Tape Letters, the truth is that whenever a man lies with a woman, there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. If you want to know true liberty, and yes, even sexual liberty, you must realize that it is God who enables us to live the kind of life we were meant to live. In verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. If number one, your body is for the Lord, then number two, your body is joined with Christ. You are members of the body of Christ. Why would you then take Christ's body and join them with a prostitute? And just uttering that statement, uttering that statement immediately had Paul follow it up with a never. May it never be. God forbid. 
This is an unthinkable thing to join Christ with something that is sexually immoral, and yet we are Christ's body. Would any of us dare to go to Christ and tell him that you will commit adultery and ask him to join you? Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. flesh excuse me. Sex is a joining. It's what consummates marriage. Even in Exodus chapter 22, 16, it exemplifies this, it, it highlights this because even if a man sleeps with a woman, then it says you have to marry her. You've already made yourself one with that person. This is the design of God. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Sex and the consummation of marriage points to our joining together with Christ. And I've said this again and again in the past, but it doesn't simply point to it as if it were just mere symbolism. We become one with Christ. And this is the profound mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. This is a profound mystery, this joining together with Christ. Marriage then contains something far greater than what we see from the outside or what we see even on the outside. The divine reality that is being shown to the Corinthian church is a far greater, infinitely greater reality than what they have been thinking of than themselves. So if you are one with him, how could you ever drag him into this kind of muck? In the beginning, we saw the consequences of sexual immorality, but here we get to see why. Why it's so dire. Why it's so serious. You need to know who you're joined with. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So how do you fight it? How do you fight it? Do you bulk up? Do you train? Do you learn how to jump kick? No, you don't. Not this sin. You flee, you run, you get out. I don't care if you look stupid doing it, that's what you have to do. Joseph had Potiphar's wife continually try to seduce him day after day after day. There is no way you can withstand this kind of onslaught. How sweet is the allure of adultery? The Bible says, sweeter than honey. How smooth is it? It's smoother than oil. Are you saying that you know of something sweeter than the sweetest thing? Do you know something smoother than the smoothest thing? Get out. Turn it off. That's what the Bible is saying. Get out. Flee. Are you tempted to read something, watch something, participate in something you know will not be good? Get out. Trust me, you won't ever regret it. 
But if you keep on putting yourself in that kind of situation, trust me, you will end up regretting it. No Christian will ever regret not finishing watching some sexually explicit TV series. You're not going to go to heaven and be like, man, I wish I'd finished that TV series. You're not just not, not going to do that. That's not going to happen. But many who do that will have these images seared in their head and their souls. And that's what you'll regret. When you close your eyes and the images are seared into your brain, and you're like, I wish I could get out of it, but I'm trapped because I didn't flee. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the sixth time Paul uses the argument that starts with, do you not know? Don't you know your body, your body here is singular, your body, each one of you, your body is a temple. This line has been butchered so much by contemporary society that people's first inclination when they read this now is to think of dieting or some kind of exercise regimen. The body is a temple refers to the worship of the holy and living God, not self-worship. Don't you know that the Holy Spirit is inside of you? We are God's temple. And it says in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verse 16, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The distinguishing characteristic of the temple is that it's a place where God dwells. This means... It's not just any temple. It's God's temple. The possessor of the temple is the one who dwells in it. For you were bought with a price. This would have been the antithesis of the price one would have paid for a prostitute. It's not a delicate way of putting it. Some might think it's crass. But Paul isn't dealing with a delicate group of people. They were outright in their immorality, and Paul brings it to a level they can understand. You were bought with a price. This is clearly referring to Calvary, where Christ gave his life to purchase sinners. Once bound for hell, he paid the price to purchase freedom for the enslaved. So we are not slaves to sin anymore, but we belong to God. And contemporary thinkers might think, wait, doesn't it still mean we're slaves, though? Aren't we still slaves just to a different owner? The answer, the simple answer is yes. The two major identities of a Christian is that we are, number one, children of God, and number two, we are servants of God. The word doulos that's translated is either bondservant or slave, and both translations are correct. The ESV translates, every time we see the word doulos, it will translate it as bondservant because when we think of slave, we think of someone who doesn't have any worth in chains uh, in today's world. So this wasn't necessarily the case for slaves in the ancient world. So to help clear that up, they use the word bondservants. But it still means slave. So you're either a slave of Christ or a slave of sin. 
One frees while the other oppresses. And throughout the New Testament, the word doulos or bondservant or slave is used for someone that is absolutely devoted to Jesus. Paul calls himself a doulos of Christ. This isn't a picture of someone reluctantly being dragged into the work of Christ, but it's someone who is humbled and honored to do it. Even in the Old Testament, in Exodus, the bondservant or ebed was someone that volunteered to be an indentured servant to a master. A servant meant that he would live in the house of the master until he or the master died, and that he and his family would be under the protection of the master. You have been bought with a price. No longer are you bound and set for eternal damnation, but you are now the Lord's own. We belong to him. What does that mean? Does that mean we can do what we ought to do then? And that's why it says, glorify God with your body. It's the negative. The negative is flee from sexual immorality. It's set against the positive, which is glorify God. And the word right before glorify God with your body is the word so. So glorify God. It's from the word day, which is a notation of urgency. So glorify God means urgently so. So now urgently glorify God with your body. This is a command that's supposed to be taken in urgency. That means do this speedily without delay to the point where you're saying it's already done. It's already done. Make your body a shrine that glorifies God. This is what Paul is teaching the Corinthians. This is what the scriptures teach us the point of our body, what it truly means to be free against, pitted against the oppression, the enslavement that sin brings. So glory to God, because we have been bought with a price. We have been set free from the bondage of sin so that we can live in true liberty as we ought to, as we were meant to, with full joy, honoring the one who gives us this freedom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time and this morning that we can reflect on what the scriptures teach us about holiness, what the scriptures teach us about how we are to regard and use our bodies. Forgive us, O oh God, when we were misguided and we thought and we were compelled, persuaded even by the things of this world, repent and turn back to you so that we can use our bodies now to glorify you. Let's take this time to pray, and as we reflect on the word that's been given to us, pray, repent, turn back, but also urgently ask that the Holy Spirit will give you strength to glorify God with your bodies. Let's pray.